Welcome to A Course in Miracles, Living the Love, Walking the Talk, with Rev. Jennifer Hadley, a beloved teacher of the Course, who has helped thousands learn how to express their beliefs from moment to moment in their everyday lives. Get ready to focus on your intent to be the love, be the peace, through practical application. Here is your host, Rev. Jennifer Hadley. Bonjour. Welcome, welcome. So glad that we're joining together today. It's a great day to wake up. (laughs) And I'm excited today. I have a dear friend, a man I much admire, Gary Renard, here today. Gary is the author of uh, a number of books that I feel are very helpful to us and Um, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but as always, we're going to begin with a prayer. So let's just do that, and then we'll jump right into our time with Gary Renard. So I invite everyone to place their hand on their heart, and we take a breath here, and we partner up with the higher Holy Spirit self, the true identity of us all, the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us in this conversation and connection where transcending time and space and joining together for the purpose of our remembering, our awakening, our living a life of joy. So grateful, so thankful that we naturally share the benefits with everyone because we're one with them. We share the same mind. So in gratitude, we let it be. We know it's done. And so it is. Amen. 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 Yeah. So, uh, Gary, welcome. Hey, Jennifer. It's great to talk with you again. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's always fun. You know, uh, you're such a great teacher and you do such a great job for so many people. And uh, whenever I get the chance to see you, uh, like we just saw each other at the Course of Miracles conference in San Francisco, and whenever I have a chance to even just chat with you, it's a joy. So it, it's really good to be able to spend this time with you. Thank you. I, I feel the same way, and I'm going to share, too, what uh, I've said uh, a number of times in a number of places. Uh, for anyone who's listening uh, for the first time to Gary Renard uh, or maybe this radio show, i just like to share that, uh, for me, I, I, I love A Course in Miracles. It is... Just, I, I can't even say how much I love it, but uh, it's my lifeblood. And I read Disappearance of the Universe in 2006. And when I first started reading it, I remember right where I was. I was at my brother's house. It was a few days before Christmas. And it was 5.30. It wasn't. It was dark. It was the sun wasn't up yet. It was part of my spiritual practice. I just cracked that book and I read, oh, maybe thirty pages. And I was in my bathrobe. My family was still sleeping, and I just started dancing around the den. I literally did that, Carrie. I don't know if I ever told you that, but I was dancing around. Seriously, I just danced like a victory dance, and I was so happy. And. I was so happy because someone was saying 
what I had felt my whole life. Someone was saying it besides me thinking it. And that was such a a helpful thing to me. And I later that day, just like as soon as I felt it was a reasonable hour to start calling people, I literally called a half a dozen people and I said, I'm reading this book, Disappearance of the Universe by Gary Renard. You have to go get this book. Like seriously, I'm telling you, you know, I would never badger you into doing something that really wasn't valuable and i'm telling you you must go get this book and i remember and it was december 23rd and i remember talking with people calling them back on 20 the 26th of december and saying did you get the book yet and they're like hey jen it you know it's christmas you know you it uh, i've been kind of busy i I said oh come on now what's hey you got to get with it you want to be reading this book as soon as possible i'm telling you you will thank me for, and of course, they all did ultimately thank me very much. And so I, I really do say, and I mean it with my whole heart, that The Disappearance of the Universe is the second, my second favorite book. And um, I just, I, I love it and I recommend it to everyone. So that said, you have a new book. And it's, uh, well, it's, it's, it came out last year, The Life, Lifetimes When Jesus and Buddha knew each other, A History of Mighty Companions. That's right. Uh, it's been out for about four months. And uh, by the way, thank you for telling that story, because I never heard you put it that way before. So I, <laughs> I never actually knew that you were dancing around in your bathrobe like that. <laughs> That's true. And, uh, I was so happy, yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, this fourth book, by the way, uh, The Lifetimes When Jesus and Buddha Knew Each Other, uh, was a total surprise to me because, you know, I had uh, The Disappearance of the Universe, which uh, you just eloquently described, and then there were two other books, and they were like a trilogy. You know, right. there was Your Immortal Reality and uh, Love Has Forgotten No One. And at, at that point, after those three books were done, I didn't even know if there was going to be a fourth book. And I kind of thought that maybe there wouldn't be because I thought it was a trilogy and that would be it. And uh, the thing is, I kind of like talk to my teachers, and those who have read any of my books know that the teachers in my books are named Art and Persa. And I talk to them through my mind. Anyway, I, I got very good at channeling them as the years went on. And I would talk to them in my mind, and I would realize that when they appeared to me in person, that I would get uh, so captivated by their appearance that I would very often forget to ask them things that I wanted to ask them. You know, I would have all these questions that I was going to ask them, and once in a while I would just forget because, uh, you know, I was so captivated by the way that they looked in our conversation and everything. And I realized after the third book that there was a very important question that I'd forgotten to ask them. And the question was, you know, actually, how did Jesus get to be Jesus? I mean, you know, how did Buddha get to be Buddha? Right. What were they like in the uh, you know incarnations just before they were Jesus and Buddha? What kinds of things did they study? You know, who did they know? What were their lessons? What was their process? You know, what were the things that they went through that allowed them to awaken apparently sooner than the rest of us? And so I asked Art and Persa that question in my mind. You know, what was it like 
you know, what was it like for Jesus and Buddha just before they were Jesus and Buddha? Mm-hmm. And I asked that question, and I got a lot more than I bargained for <laughs> when it came to the answer, because the answer turned out to be an entire book. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, just out of asking a simple question like that, you know, came this whole other book that involved like six different uh, incarnations where Jesus and Buddha actually knew each other and interacted with each other in the lifetimes before they were Jesus and Buddha. And it involved a lot of information that shocked me because I didn't even know that they knew each other, you know, in these uh, times before. And uh, Arden and Percy gave me all this detailed information that really kind of blew my mind and was totally unexpected. And, you know, here I am not even knowing if I'm going to do a fourth book. And then all of a sudden there's all this uh, information flowing. Uh, and it was really very interesting. And, you know, I think that they would have done this book just for me, you know, just because I asked that question. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you know, uh, when Spirit gives you something, maybe it's meant for other people as well, and it turned out to be that way as well. And I don't think I've ever done a book that was so immediately embraced and, uh, you know, so immediately uh, where I was in a position where people were just give me so much gratitude for this. And the whole thing was just totally unexpected to me. It's like I didn't even know that any of this was going to happen, and it happened really fast, much faster than my other books. And uh, I'm just in a you know condition of gratitude right now that uh, I was able to do this, well, or it was able to be done through me, because I never could have thought of any of this. I mean, you know, I'm I'm still trying to memorize the names <laughs> that these guys had <laughs> in these other lifetimes, because I have ap- absolutely no aptitude for foreign language whatsoever. I mean, I I can speak English fairly well, but I have no aptitude for languages, and I can barely pronounce some of these names. But uh, it turned out that Jesus and Buddha actually uh, helped each other at times. And uh, they knew each other, really, uh, according to my teachers, in about 40 different lifetimes. But what they do is they highlight six of them and show how they were very advanced spiritual beings. And because of that, they got to study with these very advanced uh, teachers. You know, and actually, when you think about it, it's pretty logical that they got to meet all these great teachers like Lao Tzu, and, and uh, you know, they got to actually interact with Plato and people like that. And the reason that they were able to do that was because they themselves were already very spiritually advanced right. and practically on the verge of enlightenment. And there's that old, uh, you know, saying that when you know the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But it's also the other way around. You know, when the teacher is ready, the student will appear. And uh, we're all teachers and we're all students. And uh, the fascinating thing to me was the way that these different lifetimes were all connected. And we are all connected. And this book really impressed on me the fact that the Holy Spirit has a plan. And it's just like A Course in Miracles says. If you look at that wonderful uh, workbook lesson, 169, you know, by grace I live, by grace I am released. It talks about how the Holy Spirit devised a plan at the end of time. And the Holy Spirit looked back with you, meaning your mind, at the end of time and decided how it was all going to be connected and how everybody was going to awaken and how uh, there's this interlocking chain of forgiveness. 
And the frustrating thing for most people is that we can't see it. We can't see the whole thing. We just see a little piece of it. But at the end of time, the Holy Spirit saw the whole thing and how it was all connected. And I think that Jesus and Buddha being connected is just the same as me and you being connected and everybody that we run into is all connected. And it can be a little frustrating for us because we can't see the big picture the way that the Holy Spirit sees the big picture. But if we could see the big picture, then we would realize that it's a done deal and that everybody is going to awaken. And it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And all that remains is for us to exercise our free will and decide that, yes, I'm going home. You know, I'm going to go home to God. And if you decide to do that, then the mind will automatically find a way because that's God's will as well. And now your will is connected to God's will. And what I really got from this book is that uh, we are all mighty companions. In fact, uh, that's the subtitle of the book, Mm -hmm. A History of Mighty Companions. And uh, the way that these lifetimes are connected and the way that Jesus and Buddha were connected in these various lifetimes, I'd like to talk about a couple of them, but it's like, uh, it really amazed me. And uh, the other thing that amazed me about the book was how uncompromising uh, they were on the subject of what I would call non-duality. It's like, uh, there's only one real thing, and that's God. And everything else is kind of like BS, you know, and there's one reality and nothing else is real. And they became completely uncompromising on that subject as these six lifetimes unfold uh, in the book. And that's why they kind of like awakened it before everyone else, along with the reason that they didn't really buy into the dream. They didn't really buy into the reality of the dream the way that, that most people did. Uh, you can see even in the first lifetime that is is explored in this book, which was when they were Shintos, right. you know, about about 700 BC. Their names were Saka and Hiroji. And uh, even then, even before, they believed that only God was real, because that was to come later. But even then, they suspected that what they were seeing was not true, that it was kind of like a, an illusory veil over the truth. And they suspected that there was this truth that was a constant, and they didn't call it God at the time. But even then, they kind of like sensed that, you know, what we're experiencing here is not true because it's temporary, and it's very fleeting, and it's very transitory. Mm -hmm. And there's a total reality that they could almost touch, that they could almost feel, but not quite. Mm -hmm. But even then, they suspected, you know, there's a reality that is beyond the veil. And uh, the veil is something that is temporary, and reality is something that is constant. It's something that is always there and that you can depend on. So uh, even at these very early stages as Shintos, and by the way, Shintoism is very similar to shamanism uh, in the West, you know, because it it really respects nature and uh, Mm -hmm. your ancestors and makes a lot of things sacred. And they did too, but they always suspected that there was something beyond that. And yet they had their ordinary lessons to learn. They were people, you know, and uh, they had trials that they had to go through. You know, one example would be that the two of them, uh, and they were both uh, men at the time, and they both fell in love with the same woman. Mm, And if you want a forgiveness opportunity, that's a pretty (laughs) good one. (laughs) 
<laughs> very rich. And, uh, yeah. And uh, they actually got a couple of forgiveness opportunities out of that because they both fell in love with this woman. But back in those days uh, in Japan, uh, if you were there, you were practically uh, owned by the emperor. You almost like a piece of property that was owned by the emperor and his family. And uh, I've had the privilege of being to Japan and, and going to the palace of the emperor. And it's not just a palace. I mean, it would take you a half an hour just to drive around this place. I mean, it's like huge. It's, it's like humongous. And you can just imagine, you know, how impressive this must have been. I mean, the emperor at that time was like a god. And his family were like, uh, you know, parts of God. And they decided that this woman that uh, Saka and Hiroshi uh, was in love with should marry somebody else. So it was bad enough that the two of them fell in love with the same woman. But then on top of that, neither one of them got to be with her because the emperor's family decided that she had to marry somebody else. So, you know, they had kind of like uh, two big forgiveness opportunities at the same time there. And uh, it, there's all kinds of connections. Like that woman that Saka and Hiroshi fell in love with, uh, in their final lifetime, she was Mary Magdalene. You know, I so knew. <laughs> it, you know, there, there are all these uh, you know, connections going on that kind of blew my mind as these lifetimes went on. And you can also see a progression in their spiritual learning and development and, you know, forgiveness. And, you know, forgiveness lessons don't do you any good unless you actually do forgiveness. You know, it's like uh, uh, I was talking with uh, my wife, Cindy. Uh, her sister, Jackie, is a, a very nice teacher of The Course in Miracles. Yes. And, and uh, she has a thing that she says to students because everyone always says, you know, Course in Miracles students always say, oh, I had a really good forgiveness opportunity today. And I love Jackie because Jackie will say to them, yeah, but did you do it? <laughs> and it's like, uh, we all have forgiveness opportunities all the time, but do we really do them? You really have to, uh, you know, kind of like buckle down and say, okay, that's not just an opportunity, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually forgive. And what uh, you see with Jesus and Buddha through these lifetimes is that they actually did it. You know, they actually took advantage of these opportunities and practiced forgiveness. So, uh, in there's one chapter in the book that actually covers two different lifetimes, and that's Saka and Hiroshi, but there's also uh, a time oh, about 100 years later in China. And uh, this time, they're not just two men, they're male and female, and they're actually involved in a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that time, their names were Xiao Li and Wosan, and they ended up you know, being students of Lao Tzu. And, uh, you know, once again, people say, oh, yeah, yeah, they knew Lao Tzu. Well, why wouldn't they? Because they were practically on the same level as mm-hmm. Lao Tzu was. And uh, Lao Tzu is very similar to Buddha. You know, he's kind of like pre-Buddha. And uh, <laughs> sometimes there are actually sayings that are attributed to Buddha that were said by Lao Tzu and vice versa. There are sometimes things that are credited to Lao Tzu that were actually said by Buddha. But they were very, very much alike. You know, they were in uh, two different places on Earth, but they were very similar. And in that lifetime, Shaoli and Wosan, uh, when they were children, they were very psychic, and uh, they would actually uh, have people come to them and ask them 
for the future, you know, what should I do, advice. And this is when they were just, you know, teenagers. And uh, eventually they got tired of that, and they just took off on their own and started to live their own life, got away from their parents who were exploiting them, you know, for the gold and, and everything. And uh, they went off, and he eventually ended up studying with Lao Tzu. And you can see in the book that they gained tremendous uh, discipline of the mind mm-hmm. by studying with Lao Tzu. And Lao Tzu was, was very close to being purely non-dualistic, but he didn't put it in terms of God, and practically nobody in those days uh, put it in terms of God. And if you don't uh, have a God that is kind of like perfect oneness, then you're going to be a little bit scattered. You know, it's kind of like what A Course in Miracles uh, teaches. Your mind will be erratic until you make a firm commitment to this perfect oneness. And they weren't quite there yet, and neither was Lao Tzu, but they certainly learned a great deal uh, from Taoism and from Lao Tzu. And uh, they were developing to the point where they were saying, you know, there's something missing. They were starting to, to get the idea, okay, there's something missing, and they were starting to suspect what it was. And they didn't call it God yet, but they were progressing very quickly. So when you get to the third lifetime in this book where they're Hindus. Uh, and mm-hmm. at that time, the Hindus were Harish and Padmaj, and they were uh, very close friends at that time. And uh, you know, they're into Hinduism, but they're into the form of Hinduism that was really pretty non-dualistic, as expressed in the Vedanta, mm-hmm. although uh, the Vedanta has been misinterpreted also as being dualistic, but they interpreted it correctly, and they realized, okay, uh, you've got two seeming things. You've got reality, which is a constant, once again, and then you've got unreality, which is always changing in something that you can't really depend on. How can you depend on something that is always changing? And so they really got that you can only depend on that which does not shift and change. And uh, in this lifetime, they, through meditation and through uh, practice, really got some mental discipline going. Now, uh, unfortunately for them at that time, they didn't have very good food to eat, they didn't have good water to drink, they didn't take very good care of their bodies because they were kind of like focusing uh, so much on the spirit that they didn't live very long. And uh, this is something that I try to impress on students is, is, you know, don't forget to take care of yourself. You know, just because the world is an illusion and just because your body is an illusion, it doesn't mean that you don't take care of it. And uh, when I say that, you know, sometimes people will say, well, Gary, you know, if the body's just an illusion, why do I have to take care of it? Well, you know, that's the way that it works in the illusion, in the dream. It's like, it doesn't mean that you're equating yourself with your body if you take care of it. I mean, you wouldn't confuse yourself with being your car. You know, you you wouldn't say, oh, I am my car. But if you want your car to run, then I would suggest that you put oil in it and that you put gas in it and things like that, or else it's not going to run. You know, it's as simple as that. Exactly. And you're not uh, confusing yourself with being your body, and you're not confusing yourself with being your car. You know that you're not. It's just that if you don't take care of it, it's not going to (laughs) work. And that's why... I always go back to what Ken Wapnick used to say. You know, he used to say, don't forget how to be normal. You know, if you get sick, uh, it's okay to see a doctor. 
you know, you're not a bad Course in Miracles student if you do normal things uh, to take care of yourself. Because it's like apples and oranges. You know that you're not your body, but if you want your body to run, then you should take care of it. And Harish and Padmaj kind of like forgot about that <laughs> at the time that they were Hindus, and as a result of that, they died in their late 20s. But uh, at the same time, they made tremendous progress in that lifetime on the level of the mind and on uh, the level of discipline, especially through meditation. And uh, even though, you know, Course in Miracles is more about forgiveness than it is about meditation, you'll notice that in the later workbook lessons in the Course, it involves an actual approach to God. Mm. It's like you're losing that fear of God that people didn't even know that they had. You know, you'll read about the fear of God in the Bible and all that, but that's just kind of like scratching the surface because the real fear of God that people have is under the surface. It's unconscious. And you'll notice it in the Course, the last two obstacles to peace are the fear of God and the fear of death. And the truth is you wouldn't have one without the other. You know, if you were not afraid of God, you would not be afraid of death. And if you lost that fear of God, you would also lose that fear of death. And late in the course, in those later workbook lessons, you'll notice uh, it involves an actual approach to God. In fact, at one point, uh, Jesus actually has you call out to God uh, in one of the workbook lessons. He actually tells you to say, God, God. It's like you're actually getting used to being with God. And that fear of God that you used to have is disappearing and you're getting used to actually being one with God. And uh, you know, this is kind of like the process that you see Jesus and Buddha and other incarnations going through to the point where they're starting to get to be uh, these enlightened masters. And by the time you know the fourth lifetime comes around, where they're with Plato, and at that time uh, there were two students of Plato named uh, Takis and Akiros, and uh, they are actually more advanced than Plato at that point. And cert- this is certainly not a put-down of Plato, who is probably one of the greatest <laughs> you know, philosophers uh, in history, and certainly the greatest philosophical writer in history. But part of the reason for that is that his writings survived, <laughs> where most mm-hmm. people's writings d- didn't survive. True. But uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that he's known as probably one of the greatest writers in history. But uh, at that point, uh, there's actually a dialogue in the book between Takas and Akiros talking about Plato. And uh, they're kind of like saying, look, you know, Plato is a, a genius and a great philosopher, but he's still making it real. He's still making the dream real. He's still making this whole thing real. And as long as you do that, your allegiance is kind of like divided. You know, it's kind of like divided between the world and God. And at that point, they're almost ready to call it God. But uh, at that time, non-duality, it's like if you say, okay, there's reality and there's unreality, fine, that's non-duality. But almost nobody identified the reality as God because you didn't really have much monotheism in those days. It's like even in Hinduism, you know, they didn't have one God. They had many gods. And when you have many gods, it's difficult to focus on perfect oneness. Because how can you focus on perfect oneness when you have all these different entities and all these different things going on? Right. And I think that by the time, uh, you know, Takis and Akiros are talking about Plato, they're saying, okay, uh, first of all, you can't compromise on uh, reality. There's either reality or not reality. 
and by then they're making a firm commitment to reality, which leads to the next lifetime. And this is one of the most important lifetimes, maybe the most important lifetimes. And this is when Buddha, whose name was Siddhartha at the time, you know, comes into being, and uh, he lives a great example for everyone because he was born of wealth. You know, he was born at, in a way of privilege and where he had everything. He lived in a palace. His father was a king, you know, not king of the whole country because back in those days it was more regional. You know, you, you had areas where someone was a king, not whole countries where someone was a king. You know, it was kind of like Game of Thrones, you know, where people are like kings of a certain area, and, and maybe one aspires to be the king of the whole area, but that didn't happen yet. And so back in these days, and this is about, oh, you know, 400 B.C., mm-hmm. uh, and, and by the way, uh, historians will argue about who came first, uh, Plato or Buddha, but the truth is they, they practically touched each other in time. You know, and uh, I trust my teachers, Art in person. They say that Plato came just before uh, Buddha. Other people will argue that uh, Plato uh, was actually just after Buddha. But uh, I'll go along with Art in person. And in any case, uh, it really cracks me up that people think that they know their history. Because, you know, we don't know what happened 2,400 years ago. We just think that we know. We don't even know what happened at the time of Jesus. There's very little historical evidence of any of this. So uh, that tends to make me trust my teachers even more. And uh, they're saying that the time of Buddha was just after Plato. And uh, when Siddhartha had this life of privilege, he still had kind of like a wanderlust because he wondered what the outside world was like. And his father, who was this kingly figure, wouldn't let him go out and see the world. So he always wanted to do that. So he was born to a life of privilege, and he, he was uh, in an arranged marriage. But fortunately for him, this arranged marriage was something that made him very happy, because he very quickly fell in love with this woman uh, who he ended up being married to. And the only thing was his father wanted them to have children, and they didn't. So after a few years, that became a, a great forgiveness lesson for all of them. And, uh, you know, Siddhartha's uh, wife could see that he was longing to leave, and she didn't want him to leave, but at the same time, she could kind of like sense that he was going to, and he left. And uh, he always wanted to get out, and he had found this escape place through the palace, even when he was a child, but he never had the nerve to use it. And then finally, when he was about 20 years old, uh, you know, and he had been married for a couple of years, because they married very young, you know, back in those days, when they were like teenagers, and he escaped, and he went out into the world, and uh, he was shocked by what he saw, because there was great poverty and, and all mm-hmm. the suffering that he had never experienced. And, uh, you know, he went from being a, a very rich man to being uh, an ascetic and actually renouncing the world. And it was very interesting because being rich and being a man of privilege, that didn't satisfy him. That didn't make him happy. But then after a few years of being an ascetic and renouncing the world, he realized that that didn't make him happy either. Mm-hmm. And that was quite a dilemma for him because, you know, having everything, that didn't make him happy. And having nothing, that didn't make him happy. So what do you do? And then he realized, you know, he had this wonderful realization 
that his happiness and his peace of mind could not be dependent on anything in the world, that it could not be dependent on circumstances, that it had to be dependent on his mind and the way that he was looking at everything. And all of this learning that he had accumulated in all these different lifetimes came back to him, which happens with people. You know, it's like when you see people uh, awakening in this lifetime, all of a sudden they start to remember experiences that they've had all through all these various lifetimes, whether it's you or me or or anybody. You start to kind of like, you know, accumulate this experience, and the experience starts to come back to you, and you start to remember uh, these things that you learn, even if you don't remember the details of how you learned them, your experience starts to come back to you because everything is still there in your unconscious mind. And what happened with Siddhartha was that he started to remember all his learning. And as part of that awakening, he realized, you know, uh, you don't have to go to extremes. You don't have to be rich, and you don't have to be poor. You don't have to give up the world. If you think that you have to give up the world, that's making it just as real as if you want it. So that's when Buddha, uh, who we call Siddhartha today, uh, that's when he went to what he called the middle way. And the middle way is very similar to what we were saying earlier. You know, just be normal. You know, don't forget how to be normal. You don't have to be super rich, and you don't have to be super poor. You know, just be normal. And that was the middle way that Buddha developed at that time. And he started to get a great following, and and that wasn't his intention. I mean, it was never really Buddha's intention to start a religion any more than it was really Jesus' intention to start a religion. But, you know, that's what people do, you know, so... Buddha dies, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, 2,000 years later, you've got 80 volumes of material that he never said, (laughs) but that's what religions do. And it's like, uh, he was very simple, and he was saying, look, uh, go the middle way, and your happiness and your peace of mind cannot be dependent on what happens in your life. If your happiness and your peace of mind is dependent on circumstances, then you'll never be happy. Your happiness and your peace of mind has to come from within, and it has to come from the way that you're looking at everything, because then you can realize that you're not a victim and that this is your dream and that the whole thing is coming from you, which is what Buddha was talking about when he said, I am awake. You know, he realized that he wasn't a figure in the dream, and he wasn't a victim of the dream, and that the whole thing was being done by him, which put him in a position of cause instead of effect. So... Now, as the years go on, he's developing this following, and then one day, a person who used to work at the palace when he was a kid comes up to him and says, hey, remember me? You know, I used to work at uh, the palace there, and, uh, you know, I remember you. And then this guy who used to work at the palace says to Buddha, by the way, uh, did you find your son? And for Siddhartha, it's like, What? Siddhartha didn't realize that when he left, his wife was with child, mm-hmm. and that he had a son. So, now Siddhartha is just about there to enlightenment, and he's forgotten about everything, he's forgiven everything, and then all of a sudden he gets hit over the head with a sledgehammer, <laughs> like, you know, you have a son, and that changed everything for him. And all of a sudden, there was one great forgiveness lesson that Siddhartha had to learn. And that was that he had a son and that he didn't know this son and he didn't know if he would ever know this son. 
but it became an obsession for him to go out and find his son. So now he gets Siddhartha wandering uh, the countryside when he was just settled down and just about to be enlightened, and he's you know, forgetting about the world. All of a sudden he has a new problem, and the new problem is he has to find his son. It becomes an obsession with him. And as it turned out, his son was also looking for him because uh, his mother, uh, Siddhartha's wife, had passed away. And so he left the castle in search of his father. So now you get the father and the son looking uh, for each other. And that was a great forgiveness opportunity for them. And finally, they do find each other, you know, kind of like through psychic ways. They actually end up being with each other. And both of them by then had already suspected that the person that they were looking for was a person that they had known in these other lifetimes. And it turned out that Siddhartha's son was the person who would be Jesus in the next lifetime. So you have these connections running all through these lifetimes, and Siddhartha's son is going to be Jesus in the next lifetime. And they meet, and they uh, start to get to know each other and develop their relationship and, and remember these various incarnations that they've had with each other. And they put all of their learning together. And by the end of that lifetime, Siddhartha, you know, who is... Uh, you know, Buddha, and his son, whose name was Rahula at that time, uh, they're together, and they're enlightened at the end of that lifetime, both of them. You know, when somebody comes back, like, you know, if that lifetime is Jesus, when somebody comes back uh, for a final lifetime, they're already enlightened. And their main purpose in being there is just to kind of like maybe teach one more great forgiveness lesson, you know, like Jesus did with the crucifixion. But the main reason that they're there is to point people in the right direction. You know, so at the end of that lifetime with, you know, Siddhartha and Rahula, it's kind of humorous, really, because, uh, you know, it's kind of like Buddha turns to Jesus and kind of jokes to him and says, okay, next time you be the teacher, <laughs> you know, because I'm I'm tired of this teacher crap, you know, so you be the teacher next time, and I'm, I'm just going to be quiet. So what happened in that final lifetime? And by the way, this reminds me of something that Art and Persia said way back in the 90s when we were first doing the disappearance of the universe. They said that Buddha came back for one more lifetime. And uh, I didn't know what they were talking about. And I, but it wasn't until this book that I realized exactly what they were talking about because it puts it all together and how it all fits together. And Buddha actually did come back for one more lifetime because even though Buddha was enlightened, there was one little piece of the puzzle that was missing. And you see them saying this at the end of this lifetime, you know, as Siddhartha and Rahula, uh, they both say, look, there was one thing missing, and I think you know what it is. So they already knew that what was missing was kind of like acknowledging God as the only source and the only reality and acknowledging that that's what they were. You know, it's very difficult for us to imagine that we are the same as God. In fact, it sounds kind of arrogant at first, but that's not really arrogance, it's just reality. The truth is, if you're going to live in a condition of perfect oneness, then you have to realize that you are exactly the same as God. So it's not just that you're acknowledging God, but you're realizing that in a state of perfect oneness, you are the same as God because you are as God created you. And it, God doesn't do different. You know, God doesn't do different things. 
So if God created you, then that means that you're exactly the same as God, and then you can get into a position where you can acknowledge the atonement, which is the idea that the separation from God never occurred, it never happened, and you never really left heaven, except in dreams. So uh, by this point, at the end of that lifetime is, uh, you know, Siddhartha and Rahula, they're realizing this, and they're going to come back one more time, not because they have a big learning curve or something, they don't have to really learn anything, but they're going to be there, and, uh, you know, Buddha has learned his final big forgiveness lesson, which was finding his son and forgiving the fact for about three years where he couldn't find his son, and when they come back in that final lifetime, then uh, Jesus, who is, we'll call uh, Yeshua, because that was his name at the time. And uh, Buddha's name was Nadab at that time, but today people would think of him as being the Apostle Philip. And uh, Philip, at that time uh, of Jesus, was actually pretty quiet. Uh, He did write a gospel, which of course was changed, so you can't really see exactly what he wrote. But for the most part, he was just a wisdom teacher, a very wise man, and a good friend of Yeshua. And then Mary was there, and uh, Mary has kind of like been there at times all through their lifetimes. But in that final lifetime, she was their equal. So now you've got three enlightened beings. You know, you've got Yeshua, you've got uh, Mary, uh, Mary Magdalene, of course, and, and you've got Nadav. And at that time, all three of them are enlightened. The difference is there was that final step that all three of them took. And the final step was going all the way home to God, and acknowledging God is the only source and the only being, and that is a condition of perfect oneness. So, this is where you've seen this uncompromising kind of thinking, you know, creep in all through uh, these various lifetimes, and in that final lifetime, they are completely uncompromising. I would not just call it non-dualism; I would call it pure non-dualism, because now you're acknowledging God, and that's the only reality, and nothing else is true. And they lived that, and the way that they taught people to reinforce that for themselves was to see it everywhere. So when I say they were uncompromising, they would see God everywhere, and they would overlook the illusion. They would overlook the dream. So let's say that somebody's acting out, and somebody's acting crazy and being violent and doing all the crazy things that people do even today. You know, you turn on the news, you can't get away from all the craziness and all the violence. They would see that, but they would overlook it because they knew that it wasn't true. And there's this great you know, law of the mind in The Course in Miracles. As you see him, you'll see yourself. Well, they saw innocence everywhere. They thought the way that the Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit overlooks the illusion, overlooks the dream, overlooks the craziness, looks just beyond the veil to the truth that has never changed. You know, the truth doesn't change. The truth is a constant. Uh, you know, everybody's trying to, try to find their truth. Well, I'm sorry, but their truth is not the truth. There's only one truth, and people don't like that idea. But the truth is God, and God is a constant, and God is love. And God will always be the only truth that there really is. And everything else is nothing. And by this final lifetime, you can see, you know, Yeshua and Mary and Nadav living that and overlooking the craziness and looking to the light that is everywhere. Overlooking the body, 
you know, overlooking the dream and it, looking to the truth in everyone. So if, you know, if I was there and, uh, you know, you know, from my books that I was there, they would look at me and they would overlook, uh, you know, this, this uh, stupid Thomas guy. Not that Thomas was stupid, but, uh, you know, he was smarter than most people. But at the same time, they would overlook the illusion. They would overlook uh, this person who thought that he was Thomas and overlook the body and acknowledge that that person was nothing less than God. So this is where you have to think in terms of perfect oneness. But perfect oneness isn't a partial attribute, just like the Course teaches. You know, spirit is not a partial attribute. Perfect oneness is all of it. So if we want to think like uh, Jesus and Mary and Nadav and, uh, you know, actually be like them, then we want to think the way that the Holy Spirit thinks. And the Holy Spirit overlooks the craziness and overlooks the mistakes that people make. And instead thinks of that person as not really being a person, but being all of it, nothing less than God. You know, I remember in, in the first book, and I just want to tell you one second here, Gary, that we're sure. we're uh, we just have a couple minutes left. So, okay, so they asked me, Gary, uh, what if you looked at everybody and treated everybody as if they were Jesus? And I thought, well, oh wow, <laughs> what if I did that? <laughs> and uh, I think the only difference here is at the end they're saying the same thing, but they're saying, what if you treated everybody as if they were God? Well, then that is how you would come to experience yourself, because that's the way that the mind works. So in the the final analysis, that's how you get in touch with your divinity. And Jesus and Mary and Nadab, they were just kind of like living that as an example. You know, it's just like the Course says, to teach is to demonstrate. So they were demonstrating for people, look, this is how you want to be, this is how you want to think, you want to think of everybody as being nothing less than God. You want to overlook, you know, their mistakes. You know, like they may think that they're a person. They may think that they're a body and that all of this is true, but you know better. You know, you've been around long enough where you know the truth and you're going to overlook their craziness and you are going to look at them and think about them as being nothing less than God, which will reinforce that in your own mind, that that's what you are. But you're also sending a message to their mind you know, that that's what they are, you know, because all minds are joined. So that's the ultimate lesson, is that you want to be uncompromising and live the way that they lived and think of everybody as being nothing less than all of it, nothing less than God. Mm. And perfectly forever, unsullied, unstained, always. Yes. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Well, for everyone who's listening, you can see how rich and helpful this um, book, new book from Gary, The Lifetimes When Jesus and Buddha Knew Each Other, A History of Mighty Companions, is, and how much they learned and how much uh, we can learn from observing uh, their journey. And and also, I think it's very helpful in terms of our own letting go of judgments about our journey in this lifetime. And we are at time, so I really want to thank you, Gary, for taking time out of your schedule to join with us today. And 
I'm going to wrap us up here with a prayer and uh, just like to say also thank you to all the people who contribute to make it possible for us to transcribe these recordings, all the people who donate to the Power of Love Ministry and uh, at livingofcoursemiracles.com and jenniferhadley.com and also in our archive which you can find at livingacourseandmiracles.com forward slash radio. Uh, you can find the transcripts of hundreds of episodes there, including many episodes with Gary Renard and Gary's wife, Cindy Laura, Cindy Laura Renard. And he mentioned his sister-in-law, Jackie. I've actually done two radio shows with um, uh, Cindy and her uh, mother and her sister and her brother-in-law and Gary, uh, one with Gary too and the whole family. And those are wonderful episodes. People love them. So I just like to point all of those out. All right. We give thanks. We give thanks for our teachers who went before us and those who stand with us every day. We give thanks for the love of God shining in our heart and for the Holy Spirit leading us all perfectly, beautifully, in each and every moment. We say yes to the guidance, yes to the love, and in gratitude, we let it be, and so it is. Amen. Amen, amen. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you so much.